Well, good evening, everybody. It's another conversation uh, with Agility by Nature. Today's the 19th of June, and today's guest, I'm with the evergreen Paul Moffitt. And um, hi, Paul, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing there? I'm very good. I see you're in your, in your flat. I see your balcony. It looks like lovely sunshine, and we're both wearing pink. So uh, we're, we're, we're already in tune. So, um, Paul, I called you the evergreen. Anybody who's ever met you, you, you they know you look gorgeous. Uh, they wonder what conditioner, skin conditioner, you're using to keep that youthful. But actually, it's because you're a big tennis fan. You, you keep very fit and healthy as well, don't you? I do try to, yes. Uh, so lockdown's been a bit of a challenge, but I have, uh, I've bought myself an exercise bike. Uh, yeah. And I've been doing a spin class each night, which is becoming rather addictive. Oh, okay. I, I've been walking the dog. That dog is the fittest dog in Hertfordshire, I can tell you. So um, we'll do the usual, uh, let's have a look in LinkedIn. And I, I say evergreen, and I think your, your first technical gig was probably the Charles Babbage analytical engine, wasn't it? It's that far. Actually, you and I are very similarly aged. Your first job. Hey, you need to be very careful there, Mr. Gill. It's <laughs> Analyst programmer, and that was... 1906. Uh, IT, was that your first choice? Is that something that you really wanted to get into? Um, not at all. So when I was at school, I foolishly thought I wanted to be a dentist. Really? Um, that was because my father used to be a dental technician making false teeth. Um, so I'd sort of grown up around teeth and dentures. Um, my actual passion at the time was numbers. So actually, I had thought about being an accountant. Yeah. Uh, and I remember my father telling me, don't be an accountant. They don't make much money. Really? I know. And then I think of all the rich accountants that I've paid over the years and think, <laughs> um, yes, that probably would have worked. So, yes, it was dentistry. And then I woke up actually in the east before my A-levels and thought, why do I want to be a dentist? And other than they make lots of money, I couldn't think of a valid reason. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, as it was, I didn't get the A-levels I needed to be a dentist. Yeah. Um, but I started being a carpet fitter, uh, just working for a company over, over the summer. Um, they offered actually to take me on and train me up as a, as a carpet fitter. Right. I spent seven years at grammar school. I did think that I probably could do something a little bit better with my brain. Right, okay. Um, and... Actually, then applied to Access, who were the credit card company in South End. Yeah. Um, they, um, at the time, obviously there was no email, yeah. so they sent me a letter back to say thank you, but we've got no vacancies. We'll keep your CV on file. A day later, I got a letter from them saying, "Please come for an aptitude test." Wow. So my sister had um, works there, and you know, love her to bits, but not the brightest button in the world. Uh, and I said to her, how was the aptitude test? And she said, it was really easy. So I foolishly went along thinking, oh, this would be fine. And I, as I walked into the room, I looked down at the desk and there it said, computer programmers aptitude test. Uh, at which point I realized this is probably not the same test that my sister had set. Um, but as it was, I I'd actually done, I did quite well at it. Yeah. Um, and yes, they um, access or joint credit card company, as they were called, um, took me on. Um, the only computer stuff I'd done before then was playing on my Commodore 64 or my Atari. And from a programming perspective, I had copied the source code from a book 
onto my Commodore 64 and made a balloon fly across the screen. There are hundreds of programmers, old, old programmers, with a sentimental tear in their eye listening to the, the, the Commodores. Actually, the only, uh, the first program, and probably the last program I ever wrote, was on the Commodore 64. And I had, ironically, happy birthday, Dad, with balloons going round it in a circle. Oh, look at that. So yes, so that, that was my introduction to computing. Really? But um, I actually loved it. I've, I think I've fallen into an industry that yeah. um, I've really enjoyed. Well, you, you've been in it for a long while. And the variety, the thing that really you noticed about your, your profile is just the, the sheer variety. It does start with analyst programmer, and you did that for a number of years. And then you were at Reuters, IT consultant, Tech Mahindra, um, as a senior consultant, head of development, senior project manager, agile consultant. And there's an interesting movement from out of the coding, uh, out of the ones and zeros, and, and more into program management, consulting, um, and, and, and also interim agile coaching, delivery lead, transformation. And you can see that the games are getting bigger. Also, there's a strong amount of government in your profile as well. A few people dabble with it, but boy, boy, you've done quite an equal number of government and private sector. Government, what is there something about government that attracts it attracts you to it? Is it the mission? What is it about government that keeps you coming back for more? Um, so I I have to be honest, when I originally got into government and it was um the 30th of September 2013, not a day obviously that I think about a lot. Um <laughs> and I um did join to do some work at home office. Yeah. And I had gone into government because at that time, um, GDS were promoting yeah. you know, agile in government. And I had thought, I really believe in agile, in agile techniques, in agile practices, in the, the different way of looking at things. And I wanted to do my part to ensure that the government didn't screw it up, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, within... I would say within six weeks of me joining, um, my focus adjusted to say there is a huge amount of difference that we can make to you and I and others as taxpayers, yeah, and as yeah. citizens, that um, I want to be part of. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the reasons for going back because you know, I've worked, as you said, I've worked across you know, a number of departments uh, in a number of different organizations, but it's the same type of challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the day, it's our tax money that's paying for all of this. Yeah. And I want to make sure that my tax money is spent in the right way. I, I, I remember, it's funny you mentioned about GDS, because I remember in around those times, GDS really went out into, I'll use the word agile community in a loose sense of the word, but they really hunted down a lot of agile. They had a lot of, um, workshops or um, events in the evening, really encouraging independence to get involved and become part of the changing government. And there's a lot of energy then, I thought. There was, and you know, it has changed over time. Yeah. I still believe that GDS is a massive um, influence, uh, and Mike Bracken, you know, leading that, but with people like Tom Loosemore supporting him. Um, you know, it changed the way that government looked to deliver things. Yeah. Um, there are still challenges, you know, GDS has had its good points and its bad points over time. Yeah. Um, but I think if you look at it as a whole, 
I think it has been a massive force of positive change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and hopefully long may it continue. I think it's easy to underestimate how hard government is. Everyone just assumes government, uh, they're, they're not very good. But you are dealing with Great Britain. Yeah, you've got some serious issues of security and protocols. And as you say, you're answerable to the public. But the mission's always fantastic in government, isn't it? You know, there's, there's selling things in, in retail is important. But then when you're doing things where it could be, how do you stop child trafficking? How do you manage the whole tax system of a country? The challenge and the, and the missions in government are fantastic, I think. They are, and they, they touch so many aspects of so many people's lives as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to work at the Home Office um, on the border space. Yeah. Um, that's one of my biggest passions, actually. Yeah. Uh, it was what I first went into, but I've also done some stuff at HMRC a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I've... I, had a long role at the Department of Health, um, actually looking at overseas healthcare. Um, and yeah, there's, there's lots of really um, interesting areas there that a lot of things you don't think about and you don't, you know, you see the headlines in the paper about what goes on and then you see behind the scenes. Yeah. And yeah. There are lots of stories that could be told that <laughs> yeah, are very eye-opening for people, but I've signed various pieces that I know, I'm not going to tell We're those. not allowed to say. Well, we can tell each other in private, but we're not allowed to say. No. But thinking about, you know, actually, there's an interesting thing here. I mean, you know, government, big government and big organisation, big PLCs, there's actually quite a lot of similarities between the two. Um, where do you think that they're very similar and where do you think the key differences are between private sector and, and government? Um, I think a lot of it is actually the same. It's just different titles. So the similarities are um, the same type of challenges that you have from a security perspective. You have that in large companies. From a data protection perspective in government and in large companies. Yeah. Um, you, know, you could say that the differences are government is the daily mail test. Yeah. And lots of people focus on that. Yeah. Um, for me, you should, you know, it's about addressing those challenges head on. So yeah. in some ways, I encourage people in one department to say, what's the, what headlines could people write about it? And then say, and how would you look to address those? Before yeah. I, um, but in the private sector, you know, you have big shareholders. Yeah. Um, you know, similar type of thing. You have, you know, you've got your board that you're reporting to. Um, and it's making sure that you are you're doing things that people want. Um, actually, it's what they need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, a big thing for me is the difference between what people want and what they need. Um, and quite often, what they need is quite different from what they want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that that from a um, from a public sector perspective. Um, can be a very interesting debate on whether someone is a customer yeah. or whether they're a user of your service. Well, that is a fascinating one because, I mean, we talked about borders and if I have to go through and show my passport, am I the customer? Exactly. Or, uh, or, is, or am I, as a citizen of the country, the customer of that because I don't want bad people to come in or yeah. I want you to pay the right duty um, as you're bringing things through through the border so yes i was actually having this, this very discussion with someone yesterday around 
citizens versus users versus customers. Yeah. Um, and having a user focus is what everyone should have. The yeah. difference between a private and a public sector body is from a public sector perspective, people tend not to have a choice. Whereas in the private sector, um, there aren't that many monopolies left. Yeah. And so you are always competing for customers. That's, uh, it, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you don't have a lot of choice, which again brings into that. Are you the customer? <laughs> are you the recipient of, uh, you've got to do it this way? Yes. Um, and, and, and that bumps up quite a lot, particularly when you guess we're dealing with the tax man. Um, yes. So I've been um, fortunate, unfortunate enough to do a couple of stints at um, HMRC. And um, both of them were actually to do with the... Um, import export of yeah. freight yeah. Um, and the, the debates that used to go on between people about whether they're customers or whether they're you know, users of the service yeah. um, and I kept saying to people people have to use your service they do not have a choice in fact their choice would probably be not to use it <laughs> <laughs> bringing about a very contentious conversation I thought yes, but then I think that that is something that echoes across government yeah um in that um you have some areas where people will want to use your service and you'll have but a lot of areas where people need to use your service mm -hmm. and the needs of those people can really affect how you design that service yeah if someone is in um dire financial straits for instance from a you know DWP perspective, you want something that is very easy for them to be able to access um, and actually the way they interact as well. So government introduced digital by default as their standard. That yeah. does not mean digital for everything. Yeah, It's you want to free up your capacity so that you can deal with people from a face-to-face -face perspective, only those people that really need it, yeah. not make that a default for everyone. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, yeah, we are in, in lockdown, so we, we can't meet in uh, Soho and have a convivial glass of wine. I have to get my wine o'clock in there somewhere. I'll be having one later. But um, my goodness, I imagine the government is under enormous amount of pressure. And putting aside whether we think they've done a good job or a bad job, the services behind it must be under enormous pressure of scale uh, and must be testing their digital services and their not digital services. How do they cope with that? Uh, they are. And... Um, I mean, GDS um, have done a huge amount of work along with a number of other departments in getting new services up and running really, yeah. really quickly. Um, in some ways, far quicker than anyone would have expected a private sector organisation to be able to work, let alone a government organisation. Yeah. And yet they're still going through um, service standards assessments. So they have a light touch, but they are still doing service standards assessments for services that are yeah, on new in place since lockdown. And for those who are not familiar with the service assessments, could you give people a bit of insight what that's like, what they are and what they're like? Um, so I think you can look at them as one of two ways. A lot of people think of them as a checklist of things that you need to be able to do. Uh -huh. You only need to be able to evidence that just before you have an assessment. Yeah. Um, so GDS have identified five different phases of a service. Um, they've called it discovery, alpha, beta, live, um, and then 
turning off the service. Um, you have a, an assessment at the end of your alpha phase. Um, you also have an assessment halfway through your beta phase, which is where you're going from a small set of users to the wider set. You have another service assessment when you go live. Um, the standards changed over the years. It's now 14 points, no. um, but it starts off with what's the need of your users. Yeah. And it's, it's trying to focus people's minds on how you build good services and the best yeah. teams and the one that we're, I'm working with at the moment at the planning inspectorate um, are looking at that service standards, every iteration that they go through. Um, be that a weekly sprint, be that a fortnightly sprint, they're always looking at how are we doing against that assessment standard rather than, as other people have done, wait to the end of that phase and then think, I now need to spend a month preparing for my service standard. Yeah. Um, the, the assessments are run either by departments yeah. um, or for larger services that can be run by GDS themselves. Um, it's a four-hour process. Uh, but it's about people talking about their service, uh, talking about what they've done and how they're looking to meet that um, assessment standard. Yeah. Um, you don't pass or fail. Um, and I always correct people on that. Uh, you either meet the standard or you don't meet the standard yet. And yet right. is the optimal point there. Yeah, yeah. And actually, there's some great points in the service. And I agree with you. I think if people look at it as the test at the end of the, then I think that's completely missing the point. Do you think the, the private sector could be learning more from that process? I think the private sector could learn massive amounts of what's going on in GDS in the same way that GDS and government learned from the, what was going on in the private sector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the co-op is a perfect example of that where um, Mike Bracken, Tom yeah. Luke, and others left GDS um, and went to the co-op and actually turned around the co-op digital business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yes, more people could look to, um, you know, you could take the service standard and as it's written now, it used to actually mention testing your service with the minister. Which I quite um, like that, actually. <laughs> yes. No, I always, I always thought that was useful as well, but uh, they've now taken that piece out. But... I think you could almost um, take that and say, why would you not apply that in the private sector? So again, it's turning the question around rather than why should we do this? Yeah. It would be, why wouldn't I do this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so thinking about, I mean, yeah, you've done a, a number of transformations, private sector and public sector. Um, what, what's the ingredients? What's the magic sauce that you've now thought about that having done it a few times, always do this, don't ever do that. Can you give us some insight and some tips on how to approach it? Because yeah, the big transformations are the challenging things to do because it hits culture, it hits technology, it hits ways of working, it hits the whole organisation. Um, I think it's all about people. Yeah. So you you can do what you want with technology. Yeah. Um, you know, you throw enough money at it and you can do whatever you want. It's all about people. And I would always say never start off as a big transformation. You yeah. start off with a small piece of work and you scale it up. Um, but you scale up something that's successful rather than trying to impose it um, whole scale at the beginning. And yeah. the biggest challenges are people looking at things that are too big at the beginning because yeah. they know that they have to change everything. And the approach is, well, I have to start with doing everything. It's always start small, show success, and then grow. 
Um, and one of the things that I would say from a personal perspective is I have um, a bit of a reputation of being able to come and fix things. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's quite nice that you know, people say, oh, this has gone wrong. We'll, we'll ask Paul about that bit. Um, <laughs> what I would say is please bring me in at the beginning because yeah. I'd, I'd love to show you how not to waste money in the first place. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good one in government. They're, they're usually pretty money conscious in my experience. Ah. Ah. So I think, that, yes, a little bit of silence there, I think, told the, told the tale. So um, obviously GDS uh, and Government Digital Service service manual um, have been in place now since about 2012. Um, it's surprising, though, how many organisations are still out there who yeah. are, aren't at the forefront of what's going on of what's gone on um and do still need help yeah um you know it's becoming fewer and fewer but um you know, government spends a lot of money and it spends a lot of money on lots of different things and yeah. it's very difficult to try and change everything together yeah um so yes there are there are still challenges in government um and there will continue to be because um as people you know they move around, they tend to um, try and do things they've done in the past. Yeah, and yeah. the more that that happens, um, the more likelihood there is of the same mistakes being repeated. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I, I should point out, I've worked in plenty of PLCs where they also spend a lot of money, not always in the wisest of ways. So, you know, it's not a unique thing to uh, government. You know, it's just the, the issue of the very big is how can you control everything? Yes. And I think that comes back to, so you know, your question at the beginning of this was, how can you, you know, what successful transformation look like? Yeah, yeah. Successful transformation is starting small, um, actually growing growing momentum what people wanting to be part of the yeah. new thing yeah rather than forcing it upon them yeah yeah um, and it's all about hearts and minds yeah it's, yeah yeah i've said it it's about people and if you win those hearts and minds uh, and bring people on board and the key thing is if you can bring the skeptics on board early then they become your biggest uh, proponents do you, do you look for the skeptics deliberately? Um, I do. I'm going to tell you now. I look for them. And I'm thinking, yes, I found a few skeptics. Yeah, they're, they're my barometer, to be honest. Um, I do, yes, because they're, <laughs> yeah, they're the ones who are going to give you you're going to have the biggest challenge with. Yeah. Um, I do remember, and it was something in the private sector, uh, but one of the companies I worked for, um, we had at the time, I would say he was described as our products yeah. owner. Uh, and he was based in Paris. Um, our team was based in London. We also were, used a third-party development company who were in Latvia. Um, they would have been in Russia, but the company wouldn't deal with anyone in Russia, so they moved them to Latvia. Um, and at the beginning, um, our product owner was very sceptical that we would actually be able to deliver. Yeah. And yet by the end, um, he was standing up at uh, board meetings literally standing up saying if we hadn't have taken this agile approach um, we would not have delivered this thing uh, yeah uh, and we delivered 
Um, I like to say under budget. It was under budget by pounds, but it was still under budget. Budget. Actually, just been on budget sometimes is a is an achievement. Yeah? Um, but also um, three months earlier than they were expecting. Wow. Um, and it was because you know some of that was because we we didn't do some of the things that they wanted to do at the beginning. Yeah. Equally, we actually did twenty percent more than we'd originally set out to do. Oh, okay. Um, but that was, you know, for me, that was one of the nicest things to hear that I had someone who was so, so skeptical at the beginning and yet by the end of it was standing up saying, yes, this works. Yeah, yeah that, that's the great reward, I think, when you're in any sort of coaching or delivery position, you know, happiness. You see it very rarely. Um, but when you see it, it's, it's a good thing. Um, Obviously, um, we've talked about the scale of government and they've got a particular way of working and GDS marshals that and evolves it. Um, private sector is a bit more, lots more choice, I guess. And we've seen the scaling frameworks like SAFE and then there's obviously less dad and whatever else is, is going to come up. Um, but you're saying start small. Do you start small but with a big framework if you've no. got 20, 30 teams or do you just start small and work your way across? Um, I would start small, and if there's 20, 30 teams, that would that would worry me from the beginning. I mean, you mentioned the word safe there, and I know yeah. that there are organisations who swear by safe. Yep. Um, safe for me is um, you're playing at Agile, oh. and you are literally playing at Agile because it enforces you into a, a world of waterfall with yeah. a Agile practices within there. Then you know um, the post bag is going to be full of thoughts about that. And I think we're going to have a link to flame war here. So. <laughs> um, I do, but I think, again, it, for me, it comes back to you need to start small, show what can work, and only start scaling up yeah. uh, when there's success. And if, you, if you're trying to do too many things mm. at the same time, um, that's a bad thing in any um, organization um, using any framework or any methodology. Right. Okay. I know that one of the things that people do talk about from an agile perspective is the Spotify model. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they go, we're going to implement the Spotify model. Spotify themselves and the all the originators of the Spotify model clearly say, do not implement the Spotify model in your organisation. Yeah. It yeah. worked for us. It doesn't mean it works for you. Uh, and some of the reason that the Spotify model worked so well for Spotify was from a Nordic cultural perspective. Yeah. Um, and you can't apply those Nordic cultural ideas easily to the UK or to the US. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always been a, whatever it is that works for you, that works on a small scale, you should start with that. Okay. So whether it's Scrum, whether you're going to use Kanban, um, whether you want to talk about sprints, whether you want to talk about iterations or time boxes, um, it's all about what works for you, what type of thing can you do as an organization that shows how you can build something small, learn from it, and then iterate it. All right. Well, you might be on your own out there, mate, with that opinion. Actually, I did speak to someone this morning, um, Jitesh, great guy, um, and we were talking about SAFE, actually, and you know, he had some reservations like some people do. But what he thought was interesting was, you know, um, 
when you've got a large organization, where do you start with the conversation? And you know, sometimes it's just impossible to get to that. Well, let's just smuggle something small through. Let's have something that's of a size and consistent and we, it gets us going and then allows you to evolve from there. And I, I had some sympathy where he was coming from on that because it was a different way of buying in. But equally, I do worry about, and I think Dan North, don't, don't import the religion of the framework as well, which I thought I was- I think a, that's the, yeah. Um, anyone who, who works in safe i have nothing against you personally <laughs> i choose not to not to want yeah. to work in safe for all of those reasons yeah um, you know it can work for organizations but let's be clear it's not fully agile okay um so you mentioned tom loosemore and i and um obviously yeah he's got a formidable reputation what other people have you bumped into on your your agile journey or what have you read or what's made the impact you think oh yeah i'm, I'm putting that in the paul Moffitt toolkit or i've learned something here and that's definitely going to move me one way or the other yeah. well obviously yourself <laughs> that goes without saying um, and i would say other you know others who are originally part of indigo blue um yeah some great people at blue but I think I've always tried to um, just take ideas from yeah. other people. It's you know it, what it's what works well and what doesn't, and yeah. apply those to the organisation that you're in. Yeah. Um, and it's you know there is no one size fits all solution. No, no. Um, hence the reason for the it could be Scrum, it could be Kanban, it could be yeah. It's about what works for the organization that you're going into and yeah. being too rigid, I think is always a problem because yeah. you're trying to impose a particular set of I, um, techniques, uh, that are too rigid yeah. and the organization reacts to those. It's for me, it's about going into an organization, um, having an agile mindset rather than saying this is the only tool set that I've got. Yeah, yeah. The only framework that I'm going to use. And, and, and so the agile mindset is this where we think about incremental delivery and we think about collaboration. What, what is the agile mindset? If you were to um, it's, it's about um, that incremental delivery side of things. It's about working out, I'll go back from a, from a GDS perspective, but it applies in the private sector as well. Yeah. Um, what's the user need? Yeah. You know, user, customer, whatever you want to call them. What's the need that you that you're trying to fulfill? What's the smallest thing that you can do that lets you build on that need, deliver something, learn and iterate it? Yeah. And then that will grow um, and it will turn into something that works for the organization, but also works for its uh, customers and or users. Yeah. So thinking... We've talked a lot about government. We've talked a lot about a journey. And, you know, my degree was in the 1980s, so I've been through a few things as well. And, you know, it's amazing to me just seeing how much technology has changed stuff. Um, I suppose looking forward, where do, you see, where do you see us going with technology and where do you see us going with agile? Is the job done or is there more to do? So there's two questions. Is job done with agile? I'm not sure it is personally. Hint. Uh, and and where do you think we're going with technology? Um, so I would completely agree on you know the job with agile is not done, but I think that if you go back to some of the key points of you know try something, learn, yeah, yeah. 
that's that's where we will get to from an agile perspective and it yeah. will keep changing and but what it will look like we don't know because that we can't prejudge where we'll end up um, yeah. i think a similar thing from technology um technology for me is always an enabler yeah. of change or transformation it should never be the driver uh and if it if it is seen as the driver of transformation then you're doing the wrong thing mm. um, technology can help you do things yeah um and but also it can force you down routes that you may not want to go down yeah. or you may you also may not realize you want to go down yeah um, i do think that there will be a lot more made of uh machine learning or artificial intelligence or yeah. whatever way you want to group those things yeah. um, but at the end of the day it's all about people so yeah. which is why um technology will enable us to free our time and our minds to do the things that technology can't do at the moment and then technology will come along and take some of those things and then there'll be something else that yeah. we will be able to do yeah. um i don't think that cybernet's going to take over the world um uh, i don't know i mean I've, I've, <laughs> I, I sometimes ponder about that but um i don't know where we're going to go with ai i think it's going to have a profound impact in due course on economies you know there's a lot of people doing a lot of things that won't be doing it anymore so what we could do with that spare time what we do with spare time of spare people um so i think that could be the challenge um yes. i think i think that's where it comes back to from a society perspective as well yeah um you know people need money to pay for things yeah. but if if you can do different things with technology with technology um you'll not going to need as much money potentially you may need you may need you may need more but i think that's that's where it starts getting into um some very interesting realms of what society might look like in the future um yes you're absolutely right paul uh, i think that's going to be my daughter's problem not mine to be honest but yes and i think it, it you know it's i think as a each generation all should always be looking to how can you make life better for the next generation yeah um and yeah how do you give your children the opportunities that you didn't have yeah, yeah. i think if, if each generation can do that then we will keep making progress yeah um as a you know as a society um and we'll also do things that um we have no idea what they might look like and that's always been the exciting thing about technology you can kind of project predict themes you know you knew wireless was going to change things a lot you know being detached from the wall but boy oh boy as things change and i think the challenge for us has always been how can we keep up with everything that's changing so rapidly all the time i think i've got to the point that i might be giving up on some aspects of it <laughs> well i think that I think one of the things that has happened uh, since lockdown is it is changing the way that people view the world and how they can operate. And it will definitely impact the way that um, we organize yeah. and offices. Yeah. Um, where I am at the moment, we, uh, the program I'm working on has not been hugely impacted by the COVID-19 situation, which is really weird. Yeah. Um, it feels as though it's a bit of a bubble that we've been in. Our yeah. biggest impact has actually been not people working at home. It's been 
childcare for the yes. people working at home. Yes. Um, so I, I think one thing is, you know, as we emerge from this, I think those nice shiny offices are always full of people um, are going to, um, it's going to change. It's going to change the way that we, we work. It's going to change where we work. Yeah. Um, and there were a number of things that people said were not possible if you were working remotely. And yet, lo and behold, yeah. all of a sudden, in the situation that we find ourselves in, they are possible. And they're possible in ways that we may not even have thought of beforehand. Exactly. I think things have changed a lot. I think the office thing's an interesting one for me. I, I think most people I took, I think there's going to be a hybrid. I can't wait to get out of lockdown personally. Um, I want to meet people. I'm that kind of person. But I think a lot of people will be thinking, hey, I can do stuff at home. But actually, to be fair, the way the schools, well, the school for my son have handled the transit, you know, he's at home, but they've flipped to teams and they've done a great job, you know, and he's, he's, his learning has continued. But I know a lot of people have not had that good fortune. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of work. But I think it has, as you said, opened up a lot of this. You think, blimey, it doesn't have to be like this all the time. Yes. And I think that you know, there was a joke that was going around, which is what's been the biggest driver of transformation in your organisation? Was it your CEO? Was it your CDO? Or was it COVID-19? <laughs> um, and I think a lot of organisations have found that yeah. um, COVID-19 has, has forced them to do things differently. Um, it's, you know, it's forced the planning spectrum where I'm working now to do things differently. Yeah. Um, where I was previously at The Economist, it's, um, it's forced them to say, actually, how can we continue to print the newspaper yeah. um, and prepare ourselves to print the newspaper yeah. remotely? Yeah. Um, just before I left, we even had the discussion over, should we try um, our disaster, our business continuity scenario? No, no, we don't need to try it just yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot more of that going on in the future, don't you? Uh, I do, yes. But I think that, um, you know, we will continue um, to need change and transformation. Um, yeah. For me, one of the things actually is transformation should never be a permanent role because yeah. if you're always transforming, your organisation has no stable base. So, and I, as a consultant, um, I, I think that bringing someone in to help you with transformation is the right thing to do. Yeah. Because uh, and I'm not saying that just so I'm trying to drum up work, but I think that from an outside perspective, it's much easier to challenge than it is internally. Right. Um, and actually having the support from someone from an outs from the outside um, around what trend what goods can look like. That doesn't yep. mean that people in in organisations can't um, and shouldn't be seen to be heading up that, but. I think that it's a much more difficult thing to do um, if you're a permanent employee because you, you know, yeah, upsetting your CEO is probably not a good career move. Well, maybe we should be getting rid of all those CEOs and having CEOs who, who can cope with being upset, knowing that we're reforming the organisation and keeping it fit. Um, that, that, that's a different way of looking at it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's um, there are. The, the roles of organisations and the roles of people within those organisations. Yeah. Um, if you've got a very traditional, I would say traditional structure, yeah. um, it's one of the things that 
it doesn't work. You're very resistant to change. Yeah. Um, and one, obviously, from an agile perspective, it's about saying, I know that there's going to be change. I'm just going to deal with it in a certain way rather than um, actually putting a, a barriers up around us and saying, no, no, we're not going to accept change because change is bad. Change is, yeah. change is good. It's actually how you deal with change uh, and how you handle that that yeah, separates good organizations from those who aren't so good. I totally agree. Paul, um, do you know what? We could carry on about this for quite some time, but uh, I, I, I fear that it is reaching the time where I need to let you go. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking to you. Some, some nice views, not afraid to express them, um, which I really appreciate too. Um, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, or if you'd like to uh, talk to me or Paul more about it, or indeed work with Paul, uh, please feel free to contact us. I'm sure you can find us on LinkedIn or via our website, www.agilitybynature.com. Um, Paul and I are now going to go off and practice our latest TikTok dances. Um, and in the meantime, everybody, have a lovely, safe evening. <laughs>